In the late 1960s, the Baltimore Orioles went from an up-and-coming team that vastly underperformed to the best team in baseball. Over three years, they would win an average of 106 games, claim three American League pennants, and capture the 1970 World Series. There are myriad reasons for this success, but they are often encapsulated in the phrase, the Oriole way. This series, we will ask, what is the foundry way? Meaning, what is our posture for living out the way of Jesus individually and institutionally? like the love of God meeting us as a collective and being a community. Thank you. <laughs> Josh Burnett, ladies and gentlemen. All right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It, so, so here we go. Here we go. We're going to start this over again. We've been looking at this idea of, of a couple of things in this series that uh, how do we respond well to the love of God? And then to do that individually, but also collectively. To collectively pay attention to um, a slowed down spirituality in a world that's always trying to push us faster, 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 busy, 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 busy as a badge of honor. How do we slow down and take in the, the blessings of, of silence and solitude and scripture? How do, we, how do we focus as followers of Jesus, not just on external behaviors, but, but an inner life that matches and lives and walks in integrity? which is not about perfection, but rather a posture towards, uh, towards ourselves and towards others? How do we let the love of Jesus kind of not just be a series of behaviors that we modify, but that the love of God would, 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 it would attach itself to our assumptions, our motivations, the, the things that make us tick, the things that maybe go back to even our family of origin, so that those things could be redeemed or reframed through that love of God? And then how do we be a healthy community, a healthy and a healing community, which, which we want to be to our neighbors, what we want to be to our city, um, that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, like you would hope that churches could be that. And, and so we've looked at those things and we've used the, the 1960s Orioles as kind of an extended metaphor to, to speak to and weave into how we might aim to do that stuff. Today we want to talk about the idea of a multi-family, a multi family, which, uh, which leans into this idea of community, but, but, it, but broadens it. 
Because community, in a sense, is like, man, I'm going to find some people, right? I want to find my people, the people I can share a table with, the people I can share stories with, the people I can find some common ground with. But, but, a, but a multifamily sort of moves us beyond our little corner of affinity, those three or four people that, that look like us and have our same story and have our same come from and understand that there's a bigger thing that God is weaving together. Now, here we'll, we'll bring in the 1960s Orioles. There's this picture that we've used for five weeks that sort of summarizes the jubilation of that one World Series title tragically in a 10-year period. There, there should have been more, but there was one. And what we've got here is kind of a, a summary statement. We've got someone who's in the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, Brooks Robinson, right? There's a lot of people in Baltimore named Brooks. You might now know why, because that, that guy up in the air is a Hall of Famer. And uh, there's a statue of him in Camden Yards. You've got, you've got Dave McNally there, who... Uh, who is an, is an Orioles Hall of Famer. You could walk adjacent to the Utah Street section beyond the statues and see like where he would fit in that. And then you've got someone who's, uh, I can't read the back of his jersey right now, but it speaks to kind of the essence of what we're talking about. Because, because what we'll often think about is in, um, in a team is, oh, there's one or two personalities, Oh, there's one or two skill sets. And why I love this extended metaphor beyond my love of the Orioles is, is that baseball is such, and that sport is such, that you have this long, wandering season of time. It's a complaint people have about baseball. It's too long, and the season goes too long. But I actually think that supports what we're talking about here today. Because over the course of a season, things are going to go wrong, things are going to go sideways, people are going to get hurt, people are going to disagree, there's going to be losing streaks, there's going to be winning streaks, there's going to be times when a hitter is, is hitting everything that's thrown at them, there's going to be times when a hitter is hitting nothing that is thrown to them. And how does a collective of people commit themselves to continue to show up and put in the work? Where, where, where a person's contribution might be that they moved a runner from second to third, and it's not going to make headlines, and it's not going to be a big deal, but if you won that game, you moved a little bit closer to that goal. And to think about ourselves from that framework, to, to not just think about the self even in terms of the team, but the systems and structures that may contribute to the success of that thing, right? This is not to mention all the people that got this team uh, that had a great 10-year run from point A to point B safely, who helped them deal with their injuries, who contributed in ways that were off the field. Like, that, that makes sense to us. But what I want us to consider in our time together today is, is how this picture of a healthy and healing community that we talked about last week moves us past just kind of the, the, the small web of relationships you immediately connect with in a church community. How it actually weaves together generations and cultures, ethnicities, economic backgrounds, generations that we come from. And that the way in which God wants to tell God's story of redemption and hope to a city and a world that's fractured and polarized is, is by us not just finding our little pocket of community, but investing in that wider work of what God is bringing together, not just in our church, but in our city and across our world, right? To commit ourselves 
to that multi-generational, multicultural, multi-economic, multi-season of life picture of what God is weaving together. So that the foundry is not a church that just has young people, a church that has no young people, a church that is just, um, you know, a bunch of red-headed, pasty white guys <laughs> that don't check their batteries before they walk on stage, Right? That, 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 that there's not just a homogenous picture, but a wider swath of what God is weaving together. And to see that, to see that as a deep work of discipleship in a world that wants us to, to, to you know, just kind of accept kind of a reductionist picture of, of words like unity and togetherness and oneness. The, the scriptures show us at the beginning at the very beginning, how oneness can be so easily attacked by our own contributions to the mess. And how God wants to address and attack that, that, that way in which sin turns us inward. And wants to weave together not just a redemption that's true in our story, but, but is weaving together broader pictures of, of where there is separation, God doing a work of reconciliation and healing. The book of Ephesians is a great context for us to talk about this. So we're going to set some theological groundwork here. Um, so if you're like, you know, we, we gotta, before we get to the practical, <laughs> we're going to jump into why this even matters. And it matters because it's God's idea. It, I mean, it, that, I mean that's, I, that's, that's what Ephesians wants us to know, right? That, that like the fullness of Jesus to, um, to, to, to heal what has been fractured, to forgive sin, to be greater than the temple of Artemis, which is the penultimate temple in the city of Ephesus, is, is the work that Paul wants to get across to his audience in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesus in the first century is a city where people are coming to find work. Like Baltimore, it's a place that has the haves and that has the have-nots. It's the people who uh, are exploiting and the people who are exploited. The people who move there because it's got some real liveliness and some culture and some people that are moving there because they feel like they don't have any other way and they're stuck and they got to feed their family somehow. People that got there from their own will, people who were brought there against their will. You have all of these things working together in this city. And here's what's happening. The good news about Jesus, the resurrection hope of Jesus is rippling out across the city of Ephesus. And it's standing in contrast to this stratified Roman society which says, hey, we are a diverse collective of people, but you got to stay in your lane. And Ephesus works just fine. And we can do business in Ephesus if you do your thing and I do my thing and you do your thing and we do our thing and we just kind of like coast. And Paul says, no, no, because the fullness of Jesus calls us to something bigger than that. It invites us to something bigger than that. Ephesians chapter 2 verse is 8 through 10 is a great summary of where Paul is going with most of the first chapter. When, when Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved. Um, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I love that text and I love that phrase handiwork. You're going to hear a lot about Ephesians 2.10 this year as we put together some plans for the fall. But like um, Ephesians 2.10 is this beautiful picture, I think, that, that very much matches what you probably heard in fourth grade. That you are crafted with intent, that you are made in God's image, that you are special, that you are unique, that you are loved, that, that like you are not an accident. <laughs> like like these, these, there's this beautiful reminder here um, and the, the, the image that Paul used to a city that makes things and values craftsmanship and artisanship, right? Like that's a great image. You've been forged with intent. This is not your awesomeness. This is, this is what God's handiwork is on display when God made you. But here's where we might miss because we're Western people and we're modern people. We tend to hear this just through an individual lens. We tend to hear this through, even though there's a, for we are God's workmanship, we probably hear it like, well, you're special and I'm special and we're all special. And whether it's Bluey or Mr. Rogers, someone's just calling us to remind ourselves that we have value. And don't get me wrong, for goodness sake, friends, there are some of us that need that to wash over us today. That need to hear that we have value and worth, not because of the awesome things we've done, not because of the, 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 the awful things that we have done, but because God sees and is making us into something far greater than we could script for ourselves. Some of us need to receive that today. But if we stop there, we miss the fullness of the invitation of Ephesians to be woven together into something even greater as a collective. So we jump to verse 11 where, where Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." quick time out. You may not feel the full impact of this Jew-Gentile tension, but I assure you, this is a real tension. This, this is, this is the, the polarity of that's, 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 that arguments are going to forge over in early church communities, like who is in and who is out. And you can even see people being called the circumcision, the uncircumcised, labeled, and probably right, if there was some form of, of media to go with it, stoking of that tension and, and the embodiment of, like, we get our crowd and we got our opinions, and here's what Paul is saying. But no, no, by the blood of Christ, that stuff stops. We're doing something different here. And the stratification that happens in Ephesus and the stratification of, 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 well, you belong here and you belong here. No, at the, at the, we, we, are all, we are all bowing 
the knee to, to what Jesus has done together. And so these former ways of pointing fingers and calling one another out and excluding one another are gone because, why? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So, so again, let's come back to the idea. You may not feel this tension, but, but you might feel a tension of who doesn't belong at the table. And you might feel a tension of like, well, okay, but like, like, like the truth of Jesus, but I don't know. To think strategically about how Jesus has put to death the layers of hostility that you might bring towards those that you might feel like are outside the, 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 the way of Jesus. To see that God is weaving together a new family and a culture of individuality and is weaving together a new humanity in a culture of polarity. And that God is crafting a united, though not uniform, new humanity. That the way God is going to tell this story is by bringing together groups of people who otherwise would have very little to, to hang out about. That have very little to like each other about. Very little reason to, to, to party together. Very little reason to celebrate together. In fact, would be often celebrating on the backs of the failures of the other. Paul gives us three kind of just really quick illustrations of what this might look like, some pictures that might help our minds get a sense of what this is about. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He gives us three really quick analogies here that I'll mention. One is the whole picture of citizenship. Yes, even in the first century, they're fighting over who gets to have, you know, you know the rights of what it means to be a citizen of a country. What does it mean to not be a citizen of a country? 2,000 years, some things don't stop, right? And, and so one of the things Paul is calling us to is to say, hey, you know, there's this whole conversation here, but when we are in Christ, it changes that conversation. It changes because, because whatever, whether we're citizens or not citizens of, of, of the, you know, the Roman Empire, we are citizens of God's kingdom. 
And that is weaving and informing together something that we do together when we're, when we're, in, this, we're, in, we're in this context. He gives us the idea of household, this word oikos, which, which is not just Greek yogurt. Um, but is it the idea of a family, the idea of a household, which is not a mom, dad, and 2.3 children and a white picket fence, is, is the idea of generations of people, people that may not be biologically connected, but are connected to the, to the vision of the household. And he's saying to them, hey, we're going to do different life in light of in light of the love of God. So, so this household doesn't reflect just Ephesus's values or Ephesian values. It represents kingdom values. One of the things you'll see in the letters of Paul that, that, that sometimes can be quite jarring if you stumble upon them is what Paul will call the household, what, what theologians will call the household, code, household codes where Paul is writing letters to people in those first century cities and, and to think about how as men and women and servants and children and, and it, like how they might live differently in light of how they are loved by God, essentially calling them to unwind how they have been stratified in their culture. In other words, and as an Ephesian man, uh, if you are the head of household, you have the permission slip to do whatever you want to do. And Paul says, no, not if you're in Christ. You live differently in light of, in light of who you are in Christ. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is not just your willy-nilly, whatever you feel like doing, where the wind takes you. You, you. you have a new call to one another. This is what Paul's trying to get us to understand. And then he gives us this image of the temple. This image of the, the, a living temple by which, you, you know, we are being, where God's presence is living and dwelling and displaying itself in us and among us. And if you, if you don't know much about uh, the, the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, like there's this massive temple in the city of Ephesus that is a sight to see, that is a, that is, is a thing to behold that's dedicated to Artemis or Diana, if you like. But, but Paul is saying, you, you know, the, when God is weaving together in this multifamily across generations and come-froms and, and ethnicities and languages and seasons of life and households is going to be a more beautiful living display of a, of a God whose love never spoils, perishes, or fades than, than you rolling up to this architectural marvel. That when we live this out, it is going to create a more beautiful story than the architecture that, that, that adorns this first century city. And so in a city that uses the division and the divisiveness to, to sort of stoke and divide, may you, Ephesian people, live in a way that displays and unwinds, that brings together where there has been separation because you're awesome? No. Because you heard a TED talk? No. But because the grace and mercy of Jesus is the cornerstone for it. Which is where we begin to shift to the practical. Because, because I think of all of the things that we're talking about in the series, I actually think this is the one that probably for our collective of Foundry people is the one that like we kind of 
we, we come to the table going like, that's the one that I like, I, I want, we want to be people of justice, we want to be a multicultural community, we don't just want to be a church of all young people, we don't want to be a church of just old people, we don't even want to figure out where we land in that if we're young or old, <laughs> like, we don't want to just be um, a church of white collar or blue collar or no collar or whatever collar I don't even, didn't even mention there, we, like, we don't want to be just a church of one season of life. I think we intellectually, that's the one, and we're like, man, that's a, that, that'll be, that'll, yeah, I'm for that. Slow down spirituality, I like the idea. But that one, yes, please, justice, community. But the way we will often try to get there is, is the challenge, isn't it? Because we try to get there through slogans. We will often try to get there through sentimentality. We will often try to get there through speed, right? Like, like slogans, like let's just say the right thing. Let's all read the right book that undoes, undoes everything that's been done. Sentimentality, like can't we just figure this out and be nice to each other and be good humans? Which I like. I like the idea and you like the idea, but we know how messy it is and how easy it is to misunderstand one another. And then, of course, like the speed. Like, I, I, like I, I, I've thought about this a lot, you know, and when, when, we were, when we were serving and caring for our community in 2015, when, when the city was facing tremendous uncertainty and, and unrest and where, where racial, racial um, seg- segregation and, and, and injustice was, was coming to a head in our community, like, like one of the things that exposed to us was that like this was so much bigger than just one sermon that we could preach. One clever thing we could put up on Facebook that would make all the grandmas and all the young heads and everybody in the in-between just get it. That it was, that it was a deeper work that we were committing to and investing in and learning and showing up not just to be right but, but to get it right, to listen, to hear, to incarnate ourselves where there has been, where there's been segmentation, where there has been othering, where there has been outsidering, so that we might be a picture of justice and to continue to, to let the love of Jesus stoke our picture of justice so that our picture of justice doesn't get corrupted by our own weariness, by our own frustration, by our own by our own misunderstandings that maybe come from our own family of origin. That the cornerstone of this work is not our sentimentality, is not the slogans that we might do or the speed with which we might do it. It is the essence of the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is the core to how we will build a multifamily both in understanding that that's the source of why this even can, can happen to begin with, because this room won't agree on how to have lunch. I'll say go O's, and someone in the back will be like, I'm a Red Sox fan. Like, we don't agree on many things. And, and the work of committing ourselves to the greatest thing and submitting ourselves to that greatest thing calls us to echo and model the sacrifice of Jesus. <laughs> to, to, to put in the proverbial 
emotional blood, sweat, and tears. The presence that God brings to this conversation. Easier said than done, right? Gustavo Gutierrez once said, you say you love the poor. Tell me their names. It's easy for us to, to, build, a, to build a TED Talk, but to proactively go to invest ourselves, to show up, to listen, to learn, to hear, to be uncomfortable. Well, for that, we need the sacrifice of Jesus as the cornerstone of that work. Otherwise, we're going to burn out. Otherwise, we're going to get frustrated when we're misunderstood, and you will be misunderstood. (laughs) Or when you misunderstand, because you will misunderstand. The beautiful thing, and, and, it, and, it, and it confounds me, is that God invites us. We get to play a role in how God is telling this story. God invites us to be part of, of how the, the handiwork and the masterpiece of that, that, that great artisan is, is, being, is being told. <laughs> and so, so you and I get to play a role in this, and I'll be very brief on this, but how is God crafting us together? God is crafting us together by knowing that God wants to work through you. In, in Acts chapter 8, there's this great story where, where Philip is going about his business. He's an early church leader, and, and he comes across a, a, a person who is reading the book of Isaiah, who happens to be an Ethiopian eunuch, and he stops what he's doing so that that Ethiopian eunuch can begin to understand how they've been invited into the story. And, and that detail matters because what God is weaving together and who God is calling together. But that began when Philip stops and pays attention. So we don't neglect the conversations that, that are in front of us this week. Where, where God may be telling the story of how God is weaving together something more beautiful than you could script through, through the ways in which we're, 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 our eyes are open and we're paying attention to the prompting of leading of God's spirit. That God wants to work through you, as Linky Lerner says, because God has given you everything you need to do what God has called you to do. That, that, that God wants to do this from you, from your story. There's, there's a great text in Galatians chapter 3. Paul's talking to another, another church, church in Galatia, where he says that in, in Christ, it's, there's neither Jew. Nor, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what we can be really, we have to be really careful of is that what we don't hear in that is the, the idea, well, we don't see those distinctives. Or we don't think about those distinctives. Or we don't ever, you know, address those distinctives. Because those distinctives are a complement to how God is bringing us together into something bigger. Because, because those are parties where there's misunderstanding, where there, where there, there can, can be difficult to assume positive intentions, right? Where there are labels and, and hatred and, and othering happening. And so Paul's not saying, well, don't, just don't pay attention to that. But to, see, but to see in Christ how you are called beyond how you've been labeled. But that in that, there's something beautiful happening. The book of Revelation, I, I talked about this earlier. If, if Genesis begins with like, here's this perfect creation. And then in the most intimate of covenants, there's this, there's this, like, there's this fracture for all of the imagery that, that it happens in the book of Revelation. That you're trying to figure out like, 
I don't know where you're going with this, buddy. <laughs> you know, like there's a really clear one that you see in Revelation of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation singing together of the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. So where the scriptures begin with, with this fracture that happens in really intimate covenants, what it ends with the work of Jesus bringing together people who would otherwise be at war and fighting over borders and fighting over the, you know, this thing or that thing, coming together to acknowledge the one who is without borders and the one whose love never ends. It will happen in spite of you because as Peter will show us, you will get this wrong. You will get this wrong sometimes. You will love the idea of a multifamily <laughs> more than the practical benefits that you may draw from it any given day. You will be misunderstood. You will misunderstand. You will be hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. But then it will also happen within you because what God does in your story, you know, God doesn't stop working when you are, you know, weary and heavy laden, but God will, even in that, do something beautiful, right? Which is the other part we see with Peter's tension, excuse me, tensions in the book of Acts and Peter and Paul's like disagreements about sitting and eating together with people who are not of the circumcision. We see something happening in showing to Peter something about his understanding of the love of God, Pete Scazzaro says this, a necessary condition for growing into a mature disciple is to have the courage to meet the unvarnished truth about ourselves head on instead of running from it. I don't like that. <laughs> but I think it's a pretty core part of how a multifamily works because you will meet yourself we're going to move to a time of communion. I want to share this quote from Rich Velodos that I may or may not have said earlier when the battery change was happening, but I want to make sure I don't miss it. The cross of Christ is not just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down the walls that separate us. Communion is a chance to receive that God has broken down walls to get to you and to invite you into that story and to invite you into that household. And is the reminder as we get up and we move around and we see one another and we think of the people we want to come to the table, we long to be at the table with us long term, we see that God is still doing that work in and through you receiving that love and mercy. That the work of God is going to continue and carry on through you. And so we receive communion and, and, and just admit that we're playing a role in this too and we walk in that together. So I want to invite us to, to, to step into that moment and to, to receive, to let the love of God meet us and be reminded of the walls that were broken down so that we could receive it. And to, and to come to the table with a commitment to see where those walls are being built so that we might do that same work and how we love and care for one another as a multifamily. Let's pray together. And then we'll invite you to participate. Uh, two stations up front, two in the back. You can, you can go as you're ready and receive communion together. God, it is easier to love the idea of a multifamily 
than to love the reality of it. It has tension, weariness, misunderstanding, heavy conversations. Oh, but God, the upside of, of seeing your kingdom made known where there is, where there is previous hostility. God, we want to be about that work. In our church, beyond our church, across our city, across our world. God, help us to receive that beyond slogans and speed and sentiment is your sacrifice. May we walk in it together. In the name of Jesus, we pray.